Well, good morning. Okay, how good do you think that went? Uh, let's try that again. Could you all act dead this morning? All right, let's try it again. Good morning. And we're glad you're here this morning. We are excited about today. I hope you're excited. Anytime we come together, uh, I just want you to know this, that we, our goal is to enter into the throne room of God and meet with Him. Amen? Amen? Amen. And I hope that that's your heartbeat today, and that's where you want to be, and that's what you experience, because we're going to continue that journey. Today we're going to begin, and we're going to wrap up our series called Endgame. And so I kind of want to do a bit of review to take, remind you where we've been, so we have good understanding of where we're going today. And so when we very, first began this in chapter 24, we talked about how Jesus was talking to his disciples. They asked him some questions, and he began to address them, and he began to talk about what things were going to be like in the end times. Now, as we read chapter 24 and 25, there's a bit of it where we're like, okay, when is all this stuff happening? Well, I want to remind you, we don't have a chart to show you, but I want to remind you that when you study the end times, there are several different viewpoints. I believe there's really only two viewpoints that you can, you can thoroughly back up with Scripture, and I think one is more consistent with Scripture than the other, and it's this one, that, that we are in the church age, and eventually Jesus is going to say, enough is enough, and he's going to come, and he's going to rapture his church out, take his church out, and then there's going to be a seven years of tribulation, the Bible says. At the end of that is the second coming of Christ, when he makes all things and, and settles all accounts. Now, the reason I say that is this. What Jesus was talking about to his disciples in, 24, in chapter 24 of Matthew and chapter 25 had everything to do with this seven years of tribulation. So in chapter 24, where he began was by saying, hey, look, when the end is coming, you're going to see some signs. So he talked about stuff like wars and rumors of wars. He talked about deception. He talked about apostasy, where people are walking away from the faith that said they were believers. He talks about persecution. He said, listen, when the end starts happening, in those last, those, that last seven years, that first three and a half years, you're going to see a lot of this stuff. Now, if you want to see more what that looks like, you can go home today and read in Revelation chapter 6, because a lot of it happens in that, that chapter. You can see this. But there's an event that takes place at exactly the three and a half year mark of the seven years of tribulation. The Bible calls it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Now, that, that's like clear as mud, right? But basically, here's what the event is. It's the event where the Antichrist, the one person who is anti-Christ, he's anti-Jesus, he's going to stand up in the temple of, his, of Israel's nation, and he's going to declare that he is God and that the world should worship him. Now, here's why that's important. Because at this abomination of desolation, when this Antichrist rises up and says that he is God and he's to be worshipped, it will trigger what the Bible calls the great tribulation. He says it in Matthew chapter 24. Now, you say, Doug, what's, you know, if the first three and a half years are bad, what about the last three and a half years? Well, let me just put it this way. It's basically hell on earth. I mean, it is stuff that you've never seen before. It's, there's confusion on the earth in this last three and a half years like the world has never seen. There's corruption in this last three and a half years like the world has never seen. In fact, Jesus says it will be like the world will look like a dead carcass. That's how much corruption there's going to be. And then here's what the worst part of this last three and a half years is that there's going to be unbelievable calamity. Here's what I mean. God is going to pour out his wrath on this world like it has never seen. 
That's why Jesus said for those who become believers during this tribulation period, that when that abomination of desolation happens, when that Antichrist stands up and says, hey, listen, you need, you need to worship me. Jesus says when you see that happen, when that event occurs, if you're a believer, flee to the mountains. Get out of Dodge. Why? Because you're about to see God's wrath poured out like this world has never seen before. Does anybody feel encouraged yet this morning? At the end of the tribulation, Jesus said this. I love it. He said, immediately following that great tribulation, then the clouds are going to split. And with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet sound, Jesus will come again. Now, I just want to tell you why that's important. See, if you're like me, I don't know about you, some of you may geek out on this stuff and like love it. Some of you are like, man, I can't wait for the next series because this is wearing me out. I don't know, but for me, I love this stuff because like when I study this stuff, you know, you, I ask a lot of questions. Anybody like to ask questions? I mean, and usually what I find out is I've got more questions than I can ever find answers. But I mean, when I start studying the end times, I've got questions like, okay, how does the reconstituting of Israel as a nation in 1948, how does that, I mean, I've got all these questions. But here's what I want you to hear me say. It's easy to get bogged down in the events. It's easy to look at the events and go, okay, you know, this persecution or has this event happened? But listen to me, I don't think Jesus wanted his disciples to get bogged down in the events. He wanted them to understand something. That when you see the wickedness that's going to happen in this world, it's because of this. Get bogged down in this. That the world historically is moving somewhere. That when you see the wickedness of this world, it's going to, it's going to get worse. When you see all the evil that happens, and you see maybe the rise of the Antichrist, and you see all this calamity and confusion, listen, here's what he wants those believers to know in that seven-year period, that in the end, history's going somewhere. And you know where it's going? It's going because Jesus is coming again. That's where history's headed. Now, for us on this side of it, do you see wickedness in the world we live in? Do you see apostasy where people say they follow Jesus and they walk away from the faith? If you don't believe me, there's been two in the last two months. One wrote a book, his name is Joshua Harris, who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It was really big when I was younger, which was a long time ago for student ministry. And then he realized what he wrote was so bad, he wrote a second book, which is apologizing for the first book and clarifying some things. But he was a pastor. And over two months ago, he walked away from the faith, divorced his wife, and embraced a whole other lifestyle. One of the lead writers of Hillsong United, where much of the worship that's been produced over the last three decades completely walked away from the faith. Apostasy. Do we see that stuff in our time? Absolutely. But when we see it, instead of getting wrapped up in how bad the world is, listen, we live in a fallen and broken world. Is it going to get any better? Not till Jesus comes. Right? It's not going to get any better. Creation is unraveling. Things are becoming worse and worse and worse. And so for us on this side, when we see the wickedness of the world, instead of getting distraught by that, let it just remind us that history is going somewhere. And for us, you know where history is going? To the rapture of the church. Right? Can you wait for that moment? Are you excited about that moment that one day Jesus says enough is enough and he shows up and he takes his church out of here? Are you excited about that moment? Can you wait to see him face to face and when we see him, we will be like him and we will spend all eternity with him? Are you excited about that? So when we see the wickedness of the world, just remember this. History's moving somewhere. For us, it's the rapture. For those people living during the tribulation period, it's the second coming of Jesus. Now, at the end of all this stuff, at the end of all this, after Jesus lays on all these events on these people, he tells them three things that was crucial. Remember from chapter 24. 
He says, I want you to be on watch. I want you to be alert. And most importantly, I want you to be ready. Because this stuff's happening. It's coming down the pike. And I want you to be ready. Now, here's why I love what Jesus said about being ready. Because obviously being ready was important to Jesus. Because right after that, at the very beginning of chapter 25, Jesus tells two parables. He tells the parable of ten virgins or the ten maid, uh, handmaidens. And basically, the parable of the ten virgins is this. There were ten virgins, and they were all waiting for the groom to show up to get to go to the wedding. Five of them were prepared. Five said they were prepared. Five realized they weren't prepared. And so as they went out to make preparation, guess what? The groom showed up. The groom took the five that were ready into the wedding. And when the five that weren't ready showed up, they weren't allowed in. You say, Doug, what's the imagery there? Here it is. There are people in this world that think they're ready and prepared to meet Jesus, and they are not. And there's going to come a moment where there are no second chances. And so what Jesus is saying is, I want you to make sure that you've got to be ready by making sure your heart has been prepared. That you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to meet Jesus and you're going to meet him as a good and faithful servant. Not as someone who thought they were ready but was not ready. So Jesus talked about being ready with this, this parable of ten virgins, meaning be prepared. Make sure your heart's prepared. But then he tells a parable that Pastor spoke on last week, the parable of the talents. And it wasn't just about your heart being prepared. It was about your life being prepared. I want you to be ready because I want your life prepared. Meaning this, that when Jesus comes, if Jesus came right now, well, like right now, the rapture, if Jesus came, would he find us living faithful and sharing the gospel, living faithful and being his hands and feet in the world we live in? Would he find us like that? Or would he find us like couch potatoes? Just being a consumer, just absorbing, coming to church and just taking in and taking in and taking in, but doing nothing for the world, showing nothing to the world, our love for God and love for people. How would he find us? Now, if we all sit down, listen, if we all sit down at a table, kitchen table, and we thought deeply about that question, I'm afraid most of us would say this, I don't know that he would find me living faithfully. How about you? Can you say that too? See, when Jesus talks about being ready, it's not just about our hearts being prepared to meet him. It's about those that are believers. Make sure your life's ready. Make sure that when he finds you, what he finds is someone that had like the five talents and the two talents, somebody that has actually taken what the resources he's given them and has used it for his glory with urgency. How we find us? Are we ready? Now, today's passage, Jesus shifts gears. And Jesus talks about the final judgment. So to these believers, he's like, listen, be on watch, be alert, be ready. Make sure your heart's ready. Make sure your life's ready. And then Jesus jumps all the way to the end and he tells the disciples, here's what's going to happen in the final judgment. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 25 is where we're going to be. And I just want to kind of walk through the passage. Now, typically we will stay in one passage of scripture on Sunday morning, but I want us all to have a better rounded approach to this final judgment. So there's going to be other passages we're going to grab. You won't have time to turn there. It'll be on the screen. You might want to write some of these references down as we get to them. Now, as we look at chapter 25, the one of the first things I want you to notice about this final judgment is that there's going to be a separation between believers and non-believers. That's not in your worship folder, but I want you to write it down. There's going to be a separation between believers and non-believers, meaning this, believers and non-believers won't go through the same judgment, all right? It says this in verse 31 of chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, he will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Meaning, the sheep is a picture of who? Believers or non-believers? Believers. I, I love the imagery of sheep. You do know that the New Testament, Jesus used the imagery of sheep often about believers. Now, when you think about sheep, I don't want to chase too big a rabbit, but on, on the intellectual scale, how smart are sheep? <laughs> so it's stupid. Yeah, they're not very smart. But here's the one thing about a, a, a sheep. Sheep have unbelievable dependence on the shepherd, right? They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They just aimlessly wonder, and it's the job of the shepherd to use the crook to sometimes discipline them. Like, for example, you may have heard this, but like in the, in the, the times of shepherding, do you know what the crook was for? It, if they were to go to an edge of a cliff, they would use that crook to wrap it around their neck and to pull them back from the edge of the cliff. But that wasn't the most important reason they had the crook. That if a sheep kept getting out of line over and over and over again, they would take the crook and they would put it behind the back leg of the sheep and they would pop it and they would break the sheep's leg. And then the shepherd would pick the sheep up and put it on his shoulders and would carry it till the leg had mended. So that crook was for protection and for discipline. See, a sheep needed a shepherd. They didn't think on their own. They were guided and directed by the shepherd. So Jesus says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep is a picture of believers who are desperately in need of him. And then you've got goats, right? Goats. What do goats do? Destroy everything, right? And they're, they're, they're stubborn. The goats is a picture of non-believers. Now, so there's two judgments. One for the believer and one for the non-believer. So first of all, Jesus talks about the judgment for believers. Look with me in verse 34 through 40. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did you get sick or in prison and I visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now the first thing Jesus talks about is the judgment of believers. Now, sometimes the judgment of believers is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ, right? In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this. It'll be on your screen. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive that which is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So in other words, for the believer, this judgment for believers is called the judgment seat of Christ, also referred to as the Bema judgment, B-E-M-A, the Bema judgment. Now in this judgment, every believer is going to stand before the Lord, and they're going to give an account for what they did with what they had. Now the interesting thing here is I want you to notice, let's go back to, to 2 Corinthians 5.10 if we can, Thomas. It says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, meaning our works are going to be put to the test. 
Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. When we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, it is not a judgment of salvation. That's already been secure. When you said yes to Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you're entering to heaven and secure, and it is for sure. Amen? Amen. So that's not the issue. That's not all. It's not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of stewardship. How, I think Pastor said it best last week when he said it that way. How have you done, and what have you done with the very things that I've blessed you with, and that I've given you? Now, if you notice here in this passage we looked at, look with me in verse 35 again. It says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Listen, Jesus is saying, listen, this, this judgment seat of Christ, in part, is a time of accountability. And I want you to write that down. As you think about the judgment seat of Christ, there's two things we need to know. First of all, it's a time of accountability. Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you visited. I mean, he goes on and on and on. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is affirming the faithfulness of believers for meeting the needs of other people. He's affirming the fact that these believers took every resource he gave them and did all they could do to meet the needs of people they came in contact with. Jesus is commending them for their actions. Now, why is that so important? Well, let me just say it this way. Actions bear evidence to who you really belong to, don't they? Are you with me on this? If you're with me, say, I'm with you. Actions bear evidence of who you belong to. Well, Doug, I just don't know about that. Well, then you have a problem with what Jesus said. Jesus said a good tree produces good fruit, Matthew 7. A bad tree produces bad fruit. They will know you by your fruit, right? So if the evidence of my life is that I say I love Jesus, but nothing is reflected in my life, my evidence bears out that I'm not a follower of Christ. And so he's saying, listen, I am commending those people who claim to love me, who claim to be living for me, and they actually bore evidence in their life. Listen to me. If you sit here today and say, I love God, well, then you have to love people. Your love for people bears evidence that you really have a love for God. If you say, well, I can love God, but I don't like people, well, you're missing it. You are totally missing. Jesus says the greatest two commandments are this. And all the prophecies of the Old Testament hinge on two things. Loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbors ourselves. That's why many of you in the room today are worried. These shirts say love God, love people. Why? Because life's all about that. Church can get complicated, can it? Have you ever been in church for a while? Has church got complicated? I mean, I remember the first church I was ever a part of. It was a church of about 27 people. A student ministry that I was a student pastor of, of three. Two of them were twins. So that made it really interesting, right? They were like identical twins. And I remember sitting in a business meeting. They had them like every month, which was, I mean, whew. I mean, if that's a picture of what hell looked like, I definitely don't want to be part of that. So I remember sitting there, and they almost split a church of 27 people, whether we went with blinds or curtains in the sanctuary. Church is complicated. But can I just simplify it for you? Ready? Here's what we're going to be about. We're going to be about loving God and loving people. That's it. And the way we love people is a reflection of the depth of our love for God. And so if we say we love God, it better show up in how we love people. So here Jesus, in this moment of accountability, he's commending them for their actions because it was evidence of their salvation. The way they loved people was evidence that they truly loved him. So this time of accountability, at this judgment seat of Christ, first of all, it's a time of accountability. And Jesus commends those who are faithful. Now the Apostle Paul gives us some other insight 
And to this a time of accountability. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. And it says this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else builds upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one has laid any foundation other than which has already been laid, which is what? Which is what? Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Underline that in your Bible if you have it open. For the day is talking about this judgment day. It's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. For that day, we'll disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive what? Come on, are you with me? What will he receive? Reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only as passing through the fire. Now here's what Paul's saying. Paul's giving us insight into this beam of judgment, this judgment seat of Christ. Jesus lets us know it's a time of accountability. It's a time where those in our faith are going to be commended for their faith. But Paul gives us a little bit greater insight. He said, on that day, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be reminded that there is one foundation. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is one foundation to your life. You know what it is? It's Jesus. He is the foundation. There is no other foundation. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to spend the rest of our lives building on the foundation of Jesus. Amen? We're to build that with our works, what we do. Right? Now you say, some of you, I don't want you to get confused. He's not talking about salvation here. That's been secure. He's talking about how we live our life. The works and the things that we do. Jesus is the foundation, but we're to spend our lives as a believer building on that foundation, right? And he says, there are two kinds of works. There's works that don't stand, and there's works that do stand. And he starts with the works that do stand, and he talks about gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, what is that a reference to? That's a reference to works that we do as believers where we are living, and when we do those works, that we are yielded to the Holy Spirit. Those moments where we do works, and we are living for Jesus, and we're doing everything we can to bring Him glory and not ourselves. It's those moments that we have the Holy Spirit, and we are yielded to Him, and He opens our eyes to needs and things that need to happen around us, and how we can serve other people, and we do those things. So the works that stand, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, are those works that we do as a believer when we are living a life yielded to the Holy Spirit. When we're asking him like Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. When we are living a life where our only goal is to bring glory and honor to him. That's what those works are. And he says, consequently, those works, when they pass through the fire, because you did them through the strength of Christ, not your own strength, and you did it by yielding to the Holy Spirit, not your own wisdom, those works what? They stand. They make it. But then there's a second kind of work he talks about. The works that don't stand. Wood, hay, and straw. What happens to wood, hay, and straw when you put them in a fire? They burn up. He says there's also another kind of work. That's the works that burn up. Now, what are those works? Those are works that we decide not to do and, and, and moments in our lives where we are not yielded to the Holy Spirit, moments in our lives when we are living life on our own, when we are more uh, driven to satisfy our own desires, live life our own way, bring glory to ourselves. Now, can we just be honest and say that every believer, we all have struggles doing that sometimes in our lives? Can you say that? Can you be honest and say that? 
There's sometimes in your life you're like Doug and you get pretty self-absorbed. You're like Doug and sometimes you live your life and your desires seem to be greater than God's desires and you try to pursue those and live those out rather than living his out. Those things that we do in our own strength, in our own wisdom, when we're not yielded to the Lord, those works too will be shown, but they will be burned up. Now, Doug, what's the point? Here it is. Every work that a believer does from the time of salvation to the time that Jesus comes, every work that we've done, not sin, I'm not talking about sin, I'm talking about the work we do with our life will be shown. Now, I don't know if God's going to have like a thousand inch flat screen TV. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to have. But I know that one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and all the works I've done since age nine to the time that I go meet him is going to be shown for what it is. And every single work is going to be tested with fire. And those things that I did that were to bring him glory and I did because I was yielded to the Holy Spirit, they're going to withstand the fire and they are going to, I'm going to be rewarded for that. And everything that I did in Doug's strength and in Doug's power and in Doug's wisdom that I did for myself to bring me glory, guess what? Those things will be burned up. But then notice what he says here at the very end of the verse. He says, but he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only is passing through the fire. In other words, even though our works are tested, your salvation is still secure. See, it's not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of stewardship. Say, so if you got it this morning, say, I got it. Because this is a big deal. Because listen, everybody in this room one day is going to stand before the Lord. If you're a believer, you're going to stand and you are going to be held accountable with what you did with what he gave you. And the works that you did yielded to the Holy Spirit are going to withstand the fire and you're going to be rewarded for those. And the ones you didn't are going to burn up and we're going to feel lost for that. But we ourselves are saved. Now, so this beam of judgment, this judgment seat of Christ, First of all, it's a time of accountability. Secondly, and I want you to write this down, it's a time of reward for being faithful. It is a time of reward for being faithful. Look with me in verse 34, if you would. It says this, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What is the greatest reward that a believer will have? Not a trick question, by the way. What is the greatest reward? Heaven, right? Heaven. One day, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not walking down asphalt roads with potholes in them. I'm walking down streets of gold. One day, I'm not talking about the physical Lord Jesus. I'm in the presence of the physical Lord Jesus, Right? I mean, the greatest reward that anybody could ever receive is to be in heaven with our Savior for all eternity. Not for a week, not for a month, not for a hundred years, but forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, etc. Are you with me on that? Yes. The greatest reward is knowing that I'm going to be with him. But do you know that the Bible also gives us five other rewards that God's going to give? Five crowns. And that's one I want to go through these real quickly. I just want you to write them down for a point of information. The first one is what's called the imperishable crown. First Corinthians chapter 9 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown or wreath, but we an imperishable one. In other words, this imperishable crown is given to those who have been self-controlled, or basically the word means discipline, against the flesh. 
So those who, now, we all lose against the flesh sometimes, don't we? We all give in to the desires of the flesh. But there are some who are more faithful than others at truly denying the flesh and truly doing what the Lord wants them to do. And to those who deny the flesh, he will give an imperishable crown. What does it look like? I don't know. But I want it, don't you? Come on, I want it, don't you? I want him to look at me and go, man, I see your failure. I know you failed, Doug. But man, I see you fighting that flesh day after day after day. I see you trying to deny yourself day after day after day. And I want the imperishable crown. Another crown is called the crown of rejoicing. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? This is Paul talking. Meaning this, the crown of rejoicing is the crown that is given to those who are driven and urgent to lead people to Christ. Paul says, listen, my crown of rejoicing is not in the accolades I've done. It's in the fact that I've led you to Christ. Hey, listen, can I just say this to you? Can you you hear me for a moment? I don't know what drives you every day. I don't know what wakes you up in the morning. But can I tell you what should wake us up in the morning? Is realize that we are surrounded by people that are going to split hell wide open. And we want to take as many people with us as we can. We want to take as many people with us to heaven as we possibly can. And the, the crown of rejoicing is going to come to those who are driven by that truth. That are driven by the fact that I need to do everything I can to build relationships with one agenda. To lead people to Jesus. Now, I know all my life I've been taught, you need to build relationships with people and let this whole Jesus thing happen organically. And I'm standing before you today and saying this, I don't believe that ever. I don't believe it anymore. I believe you need to create relationships and invest in people with a great agenda and make it known if you need to. And it's this, that when you pour into somebody, your agenda is that they would know Jesus and they would see Jesus in you and you would have a chance to lead them to Christ. Now, once they get saved, I'm not saying dump them. Or if they deny it, I'm not saying dump them. But I'm saying don't just build a relationship going, well, well, God, I hope this happens eventually. Well, you've been their friend for 17 years. Come on. It's time for something to happen. See, the crown of rejoicing is the crown that is given to those who are driven to win people to the Lord. And then there's the third, there's the <clears throat> crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This crown of righteousness is for those who live a life of urgency, longing for Jesus to return. Now, just a quick question. How many of us really long for him to come in? Now, here's what my experience in church is. When life's bad, our philosophy is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? We're ready to get out of our mess. But how many of us really are longing for his return? How many of us are urgently living our lives and living faithfully as if he was going to return at any moment? And so this crown of righteousness is a crown that's given to those who live for Jesus with a a longing for his return. Then fourth, there's the crown of glory. And 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4 says this, And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This, is, this crown is to those who shepherd the people with the word of God. Those who shepherd and invest and pour and disciple and, and give wisdom to people, not with your wisdom, but with the word of God. It is the crown of glory. Now I'm just highlighting these. You can go back and study them later yourself. And here's the fifth one. It's the crown of life. 
James chapter 1 says this, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the crown that's given to those who are faithful under trial and even unto death. They're faithful under persecution. They will receive the crown of life. Now here's my point. This is my only point. That one day for believers, as we sit at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a time of accountability with all of our works. Some will be burned up, and some will stand. But listen, it's also a time of reward. Yes, we get heaven, and man, what awesome is that going to be? But also, Jesus gives out these crowns. Now, some of you are going, oh, but Doug, don't, doesn't the Bible just say that we're going to take the crowns and throw them right back at his feet? Yes. Why? Because he deserves them, right? So why is this important, Doug? Well, here's why. I don't know about you. But there's nothing that will be any more meaningful to me than when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords calls my name and allows me to enter into his kingdom if he were to award me with a crown that I lived a life faithful, whether it was sharing the gospel, whatever it was doing, that I was truly living a life faithful. What a moment that would be if the king issued you a crown. How pleasing would that be to you? Wouldn't that be pretty pleasing? And don't be false, don't, don't get like false humility on me all of a sudden. Like, well, no, no. Yes, it would. I mean, the king of all eternity says, hey, I'm looking at you, Nancy. And you know what? I'm going to give you the crown of righteousness because you have longed for my coming. You have lived urgently for my coming. And today I'm going to give you the crown of righteousness. How awesome would that be? I want to be rewarded by my king, don't you? So this beam of judgment, this judgment seat of Christ is a time of accountability, but it's also a time of reward. And then that leads me to the second kind of judgment. And it's this. It's the judgment for non-believers. The judgment for non-believers. You have your Bibles, verse 41 here as we kind of try to wrap this up. It says, then they will say to those on the left, he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you do not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will all answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying this, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I want you to hear me because this is big. See, most of us in the room today are going to say, man, I, I, I'm so thankful that I get to be part of the judgment seat of Christ, right? Yes, I'm going to be held accountable, but man, I want that reward. I want heaven. I want the rewards. I, I want God to bless. I want Jesus to bestow those things on me. But let me just remind us all of this too. There's a second judgment too. It's a judgment for non-believers. And what you see in the passage here is this, is that people who don't know Christ only live a self-absorbed life, a life of denying Jesus, a life where they don't yield to him, they don't live to him, they don't confess him, they're all about themselves. Now, in the end, they think they've done it right, don't they? They're like, hey, when have we saw you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked or sick? When did we not minister to you? When did I not do that stuff? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. See, this is what's troubling to me. Do you think on that day there are going to be those who think they have a personal relationship with Christ that are going to be told, cast away from me forever, for I never knew you? That's what it says in Matthew 7, verse 23. 
right? There are going to be those that come to you that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Lord, didn't I do miracles in your name? Lord, didn't I do a lot of great stuff for you? And Jesus says, listen, cast away from me forever, for I never knew you. You knew about me, but there was no relationship there. See, this judgment for unbelievers is going to be a judgment of those who lived a self-absorbed life and who, de- who leaves this world denying Christ. Now, this is called the great white throne judgment. Let me just read this to you real quickly here as we get ready to close. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, is the picture of the great white throne judgment. And let me just read it to you. There's some pretty key words here. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on it. For in his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. In other words, those who've already died before this time. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment. This is the great white throne judgment. Now, believers will not experience the great white throne. We experience the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, accountability, reward. But for those who don't know Christ, it's the great white throne. Now, here's some words that Revelation uses. Dead. Dead is a picture of unbelievers. That they may be physically alive at the moment, but there's something dead inside of them. They don't have eternal life. He uses the word books. The books were open, plural. You know what the books are? You can study this later. It's the books that record every work, every thought, every sin that was ever committed by these people. And then there's the book of life that was opened. You know what the book of life is, right? It's the book that has the names written in it, those who have given their life to Christ. And if your name's found in the book of life, heaven is your home. And if it's not, then he goes on to say, then you'll experience the second death. The second death is an eternal punishment. And notice there he says this, he says, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. So at this great white throne judgment, listen to me, hear my heart, at this great white throne, when they get to the great white throne, there's no uh, mulligans if you're a golfer. There's no do-overs. There's no, whoop, can I make a second? Can I make, do I get another chance? No. It's a moment of judgment. Now, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ is accountability and reward. The great white throne judgment is as a judgment of condemnation and punishment. Now, I want you to listen to me just for a moment here as we close. Why is the final judgment so important for us? Why is the final judgment so important for believers to study this? Well, some of you would say, well, it's so I know that I'm going to heaven. Well, that's kind of important, yeah. But let me tell you a couple of reasons important. First of all, it satisfies our need for justice. How many of you, when we look at the world we live in, cannot wait for God to come and settle the account of the world? Right? I mean, how many of you are with Doug and by a show of hands are saying, I'm tired of seeing wicked prospering in the world today? Okay, so some of you are not tired of that. Okay, great. So, so we'll work on you. But I, I mean, most of us are tired of that. And so at this coming of Christ, he settles all accounts. So it satisfies our need for justice. But let me give you another reason that's so important. It provides for us a motive for godly living. When we think of the final judgment, it provides a motive for godly living, meaning this. One day, Jesus is going to reward those who follow him. And I want that reward, don't you? 
And I want to live my life right now to bring him honor and glory and to point people toward him so one day he will not only say good and faithful servant, enter in, but he will also award me any of those rewards. I want that. So the final judgment for believers is important because it provides a great motive for godly living, but lastly, it gives us a motive to share Jesus. I don't know if you think about this often enough, and maybe I think about it too much, but there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And there are really going to be people who don't know Christ that go to a place called hell. And can I just tell you a little bit about hell for just a moment? It is a place of eternal punishment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just as heaven lasts forever, guess how long hell lasts? Forever. Well, Doug, why is that important? Because you've got neighbors. You've got family members. You've got friends. You've got coworkers that if they met Jesus right now, and you already know this, they would not hear, welcome my good and faithful servant. They would hear, cast away from me forever, for I never knew you. See, for me, when I think about the final judgment, I hope for those of you the believers, not only does it provide a, a great motive for, for godly living, because I want reward, hopefully it also provides a motive to go share the gospel. It provides a motive going, you know, if I truly love people, I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't want anybody to be separated from Christ for all eternity. I want to be the person that goes and gives them hope and gives them life and points in the right direction. I don't want to be the guy who's apathetic and just kind of mediocre in my faith and sits back and trusts somebody else to go to them. I need to go. I need to go. That's why our 261 challenge is such a big deal. And some of you are going, oh, I forgot about that. Well, that's my point. Two people, six weeks, one purpose. How'd that go for all of us? Some of you were nailing it because I was hearing the story. Maybe all of you were nailing it. But can we be honest enough to say it was a struggle? You know why? Because we're not minded that way. But I'm just telling you, hell is real. We need to be minded that way. And the final judgment is a reminder to us, and it provides a great motive to share Jesus. Let me tell you this. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, why is the final judgment important for you? First of all, because it provides a warning. If you continue down the path you're going, the great white throne judgment is what you're, is waiting for you. Right? But, if you don't know Christ, it also provides hope. If you will surrender your life to Christ, acknowledge your sin, and give Jesus your life, and surrender to him, you too will move from the great white throne judgment to the judgment seat of Christ, where you will enter into his kingdom. So here's my question. I have two questions as we close today. Here they are. First of all, which judgment right now, if he showed up, which judgment would you face? The judgment seat of Christ as a believer or the great white throne? And maybe here's the most important question I could ask you. How is what you've heard the last few weeks about urgency, about the incoming, about Jesus is going to come settle accounts, how has that driven you and changed you? How has what you've heard the last few weeks changed the way you're living your life? See, if you're a believer, I hope here's how it's changed you. I hope that you're pressing in and running harder after Jesus and doing all you can to share the gospel with as many as you can. And if you're a non-believer, my prayer is this, that you'd say, you know what? I want to spend eternity with him, not separated from him. And if you're here today and you don't know and you're unsure, would you nail it down today? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes and bow your heads. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Right now, every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just want you to answer this one simple question. How has it changed you? 
How has the message of the study of the end changed you? And maybe you're here today and you just want to be honest and say, hey, Doug, I'm a believer. I know I'm going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, but I'm not living as urgently as I could. And today I'm going to challenge you, if that's you, that you would find yourself at this altar and say, Lord, help me prioritize my time. Help me prioritize my schedule. Because obviously what is so supremely important to you is not that important to me, but I want it to change today. And I pray if that's you, that you would just flood this altar and say, Lord, I want to be urgent for you. I don't want my friends, I don't want my family, I don't want my coworkers to spend eternity apart from you when I could have said something. So believers, would you take that challenge today? Would you pray that God would give you unbelievable urgency and courage? And if where you set today, if you don't have it, would you just come to this altar and would you just pray? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, would you just acknowledge, say, Lord, I know I'm a, I don't know you. Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that the way I live my life and things I've chosen and done has been rebellion against you. But today, the truth of my eternity has become a reality. And I don't want to demand an eternity apart from you. So I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me my sins and come into my life. And I'm just telling you, if you will cry that out to the Lord, he'll change you, he'll save you, and then your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you don't know Christ, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that, you would either write that on your welcome card you got today and turn it in just a minute as the offering passes, or you would find me right on this front row as I, as I am here. I would love to talk to you about the decision you've made. But would you be faithful to respond? Let's all stand as I pray. Lord, I thank you for today. And I know as we talk about the end that sometimes... We kind of look at it as, as that thing that's so far down the road that we don't want to talk about or deal with or even, even think about. But God, I just pray for some people here today. I pray, God, that you would stoke a fire in us. And if there's not one there, that you would light one. And that we would realize that you are coming again. That as we look at the world we live in, we, uh, there's moments we wonder going, Lord, how, how much longer can you wait before you come get your church? And God, that, what that would produce in us is an urgency. And God, I pray for believers today that as they leave here, there would be an excitement about them knowing that one day they're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And they're going to give an accountability to their life. And Lord, in that accountability, there's going to be reward. But most important, there's going to be an eternity with you. But God, I pray for those who don't know you, they'd be reminded that there's a judgment for them too. This great white throne where those people will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So Lord, I just pray today right where we find ourselves that for believers we would find a depth of urgency like we've never had. And for those who don't know you today for the first time, we would trust you. Lord, we need you. We need you desperately today. In your precious and your wonderful son's name, we pray. Anybody said amen? Now, I want you to hear me before we sing. If you're a believer and you struggle with urgency, as oftentimes we all do, then I just challenge you to come join me at the altar. Say, Lord, position me this week. Bring somebody across my path that needs to see the love of Christ and help me be urgent to share that love. And then, if you don't know Christ today and you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be standing right here and love to talk to you about that. But however the Lord leads you, listen, however he leads you, 
whether it's come to pray at the altar, sit down in your chair and pray, go pray with somebody, or accept Him as Savior, would you be faithful? Would you be faithful to respond to that? You move as the Lord leads you.